0: Hello friends. So this is, um, my May Day thing. Normally I'm a really big Beltane fan, but honestly, right now with what we're going through and the need for remembering to fight for workers' rights, well, I don't know, paid sick days, how about, like, just an income that's worthy of their work? Anyways, so it's also, like, Labor Day, like, not, Labor Day, that's September. It is Workers' Rights Day. A lot of people have fought hard for our rights that we have. And so I'm going to do this thing that I wanted to do with groups of friends, which is do these Vancouver working class and labor history walking tours. There's three different ones in this book. Uh, I wanna do the East Side one and take you on a tour. Now I can't do it with a group. So, we're making this really intimate. Just you and me. I'm right in your ear, leaning in. Can you feel my breath? So intimate. Now, on your way there, the first location is Victory Square. That's 150 West Hastings Street. So, on your way there, I bet you noticed all those beautiful apple blossoms Mm. weighing down those branches. Now, I'm all sex positive for everything, but this is out of control. So if you're sneezing and coughing, I get it. Because that shit likes tree sex all over the place. Anyways, now you're at Victory Square. So what do we have here? Victory Square is an important border in Vancouver. It marks the end of historic Gastown, the original Vancouver, and the beginning of Vancouver as a city built on corporate welfare. To attract the Canadian Pacific Railway, the province granted the CPR 25,000 acres of land, including 6,000 acres within the city itself. We're going to do the first, a side walk. And this one is about the land, because right here, we're talking about Vancouver, colonialism, sort of stories. Where were the Indigenous people at this time? This is the lands of, well, the Coast Salish peoples, Musqueam, Sway-Laututh, and Squamish. Um, the area that we're doing our walk in right now, up until the 1850s, was still, um, an I guess, the area that the Lucky lived in. Uh, and then they were, of course, pushed out, not of course, like, I think it's right, but what the colonizers did was push out indigenous folk and this was the area they wanted their um, sawmill if i'm not mistaken so that's what was happening uh this used to be the place where the luck lucky lived now that we've situated ourselves on the stolen lands we will talk about this story hamilton street was the historic edge of the cpr land grant extending to Stanley Park. It is known as Victory Square because it was Vancouver's primary recruiting centre for World War One, and for the Cenotaph, which memorialises the tens of thousands of working-class Canadians killed in World War One and Two. Our second sidewalk is about the Cenotaph, how the granite for the Cenotaph, uh, the whole 30-foot-tall Cenotaph, was harvested from Nelson Island, up near Saltery Bay. So this park, being central, also became a site for public speeches and protests. One of the most famous was during the general strike of relief camp workers in April, 1935. They protested here after some of their group were arrested. In response, Mayor McGeer read the Riot Act calling the rally a prelude to a revolution to bring about a Soviet government in Canada. The protesters dispersed peacefully, but their core group then organized on the On to Ottawa trek, not long after. Our last, a sidewalk for this one, as there will be a picture of a lapel button that people wore in 1935, and it said, I support the Hunger March. So next location, the Impossibilist, the Socialist Party of Canada. So head to 159 West Hastings Street. You can turn this off and then turn it back on. Once you get there, you're going to cross both Camby and Hastings and head up the block a little bit. North side. Okay, are you there yet? You should be in front of the Purebred Bakery and Okaki Clothing Store maybe go in and get a coffee maybe not we'll see how you're feeling today huh if they're even open all right so you're at the Impossibleists now the building right here 159 west hastings street was the building of the socialist party of canada it was a small but influential political party from 1903 to 1925. the party was famous for its dedication to impossibilism the political belief that only massive political revolution could truly improve conditions for workers. Do you think they might be right? Anyways, so the party had some successful candidates and helped to create some small reforms to labor laws in BC. The party also served as an important political voice for the labor movement in the 1910s. During World War I, the SPC and its paper, The Western Clarion, took a leadership role in the anti-war movement. When BC Labour leader and SPC member Ginger Goodwin was murdered by police on Vancouver Island in 1918. Again, let's just have a quick little, a sidewalk. Killed by the police. And this person was Albert Ginger Goodwin, was a migrant coal miner He advocated for workers' rights and promoted the proliferation of trade unions. Just so we're clear, you know, 1918, over 100 years ago, police were still killing people who were standing up for themselves. The party helped to organize a one-day general strike in protest. The Government of Canada then declared the party illegal. This pushed some SPC leaders, including Victor Midgley, Jack Kavanaugh, and William Pritchard, create new parties and organizations such as the Federated Labour Party, the One Big Union, and eventually the Communist Party of Canada. All right, so the next place you're going is across the street at 130 West Hastings. Catch you there. All right, are you there yet? One Big Union in the Woods, Lumber Workers Industrial Union, 130 West Hastings Street. In early 1919, a new union formed, dedicated to organizing loggers across B.C. There had been earlier efforts to organize these workers, especially by the Industrial Workers of the World The new Lumber Workers Industrial Union was the first to achieve mass success, 15,000 members by the summer of 1920. The LWIU, built on the militancy of the late war period, and capitalized on the organizing experience of the IWW and Socialist Party of Canada. By 1934, it was located here, surrounded by low-cost hotels where lumber workers or timber beasts, as they were known, spent their winters. In the early 1920s, the LWIU was part of one big union and an early effort at building an industrial union movement in Canada, the OBU, when the eight-hour day removed tiered bunk beds from logging camps and forced companies to supply bedding. However, after the concentrated effort by the government and employers, the OBU splintered. The LWIU continued organizing, however affiliating in the 1930s with the Communist-led Workers' Unity League. Eventually, some of its organizers helped build the International Woodworkers of America In the 1940s, I am going to share this picture of loggers because they're holding these tiny little axes and this tree is big. All right, so off to Wood Squat. We will win. The fourth area is, oh, it's again across the street. I'm just going to have you guys zigzagging. Hastings Street. You're going to 149 West Hastings, the occupation of Woodward's. Wood squat. We will win the occupation of Woodward's, 149 West Hastings, in September 2002. Activists entered the former Woodward's department store to press demands for social housing. The store had had sat empty since 1993 and had long been targeted by community activists in the downtown east side. After police raided the squat, hundreds of protesters cramped on the sidewalk around the building. Partly as a result of the ongoing protest, the Coalition of Progressive Electors, COPE, won the Vancouver Municipal Elections in November 2002. After more than a 100 days of occupation, the new city government agreed to buy the Woodwards building and renovate it to create public housing. Unfortunately, the resulting project was much less than the community had hoped. Only a third of the units are designated social housing, and those are segregated in a separate tower from the market units. The squat provides a reminder of the continuing effectiveness of direct action in pushing for change. All right. So your next one is five, the shooting of Frank Rogers, Vancouver's first labor martyr. Next, head east to Abbott Street, walk two and a half blocks to the fence at the railway. We're at spot number five, the shooting of Frank Rogers, Vancouver's first labor martyr foot of Abbott Street. The Fisher's Union was formed in 1893 to combat price fixing by canneries. Racism was rampant and the union excluded more than a thousand Japanese and First Nation fishers on the Fraser River. In 1900, the New B.C. Fishermen's Union (BCFU) formed and organized fishers across racial lines. At the forefront of these efforts was Frank Rogers. Working with him were Simshian chief George Kelly and Japanese organizers, including Iwakichi Shimamura and Yasushi Yamazaki, affiliated with the Japanese Fishermen's Benevolent Society. The BCFU, inspired by its leaders, socialist internationalism, was one of the first unions to try to build class solidarity across the racial lines. It eventually had its headquarters at 160 East Hastings Street, where the Regent Hotel stands now. By 1903, Rogers had become a longshore worker and with his co-workers supported a strike by the United Brotherhood of Railway employees against the Canadian Pacific Railway. Late one night, while walking home from dinner, Rogers stopped by the railway to check on picketers. There, he was set upon by CPR special police and a scab. After a brief exchange, shots were fired and Rogers was hit in the stomach. He died in a hospital a few days later. The CPR paid the legal fees for the police officer and scab, and no one was ever convicted for Rogers' murderer. He is buried in Mountain View Cemetery near Fraser and 33rd, a labour history project in 1986, placed a new gravestone, which reads, Frank Rogers, murdered by a scab in a strike against CPR, died April 15, 1903. Head back towards Water Street to 112 Abbott, the building on the corner. You're at 112 Abbott Street now. Industrial workers of the world. An injury to one is an injury to all. I'm going to start with an a sidewalk about this area. Don't let the red brick fool you here. That is not historic red brick. Historic red brick that still survives in this city is over 110, 15 years old. Wait, 1910s is when they stopped doing those roads. And the only places that still survive are in Kitsilano, and that's uh, Third Avenue, just east of Arbutus, Alberta Street, south of Broadway and Mount Pleasant, and Victoria Drive, south of Powell. So on to our story. The working class and the employing class have nothing in common. There can be no peace so long as hunger and want are found among the millions of working class people, and the few who make up the employing class have all the good things of life preamble to the Constitution of the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. A radical industrial union formed in Chicago in 1905, the IWW soon began organizing in BC. It was one of the first unions in BC to welcome workers regardless of their skill, race, or gender. The IWW also organized some of the most exploited workers including miners, loggers, railway workers, and agricultural labourers. Also known as the Wobblies, I kinda like that, the Wobblies. The IWW defended political rights as well, fighting city bans on free speech in 1909 and 1912. When World War I began, the government of Canada used the power of the War Measures Act to declare the IWW and its publications illegal and the union lost many members as a result of the Red Scare of 1919. Its open organizing model and emphasis on direct action inspired subsequent organizing in groups like the One Big Union. Okay, and so in the event, I'm adding a picture from the bottom of this page because I love the image. It's like a fist coming off of all the workers. Anyways, you can see it in the uh, event pictures. Head east up the block. You want to go to 24 Water Street to the Grand Hotel. So you've made it to 24 Wall Street. The Timber Beast Lament loggers at the Grand Hotel. Built after the Great Fire of 1886 and originally called the Granville Hotel. Okay, let's just have an aside walk here about the Great Fire of 1886. You have to know that it was a long, hot and dry summer in that year, which was 1886. And in June, there were two land clearing fires started. One was clearing land for the roundhouse. And the other one, uh, as in the area of Cambi and Cordova, the city was clearing land just for the expansion of the city. Um, Both of the fires got out of hand and grew towards each other. And at least 21 people died. Uh, six hundred to a thousand buildings were destroyed. They don't know exactly what was there, I guess. So that's the story of that fire. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, many people were rescued out of the water because that's how they escaped. Um, indigenous folks, women actually canoed over and rescued people. And I believe they have a song that they sang when they were rowing back and forth and kept them moving, even though they were getting tired. They rescued people. Super fantastic. Now back to the story of labour in this area. So the Grand Hotel was typically of the winter dwellings for loggers. After months of isolation, 60 hour work weeks, bed bug infested camps and risking death or injury in the coastal forest, Loggers returned to Skid Row hotels to spend their hard earned money. I think we need another a sidewalk here because I believe Skid Row, now the name, the word Skid Row is when you cut down trees and you want them to go to the water. I believe that's called a Skid Row where it slides through a trench so it goes directly the way you want. Um, and so some of our, I don't know if you noticed around Gastown area, downtown, and then East Van, there's three distinct uh, grid angles, and one of them, and that's the Skid Row area. Is this another sidewalk? And I forgot to mention it. Either way, I'm getting aside from here. Um, yeah, so Skid Row was called Skid Row because that, those roads were the Trenches for the trees. And now their roads. Okay. Uh, so to Skid Row hotels to spend their hard-earned money. From 1890 until his murder in 18, 18, 1918, the hotel owner was the notorious Tommy Roberts. Upon arrival, loggers, also called Timber Beasts, would turn over their money to Roberts, who deducted charges for a bed, drinks, and meals. He also bought the loggers return passage to camp before the roll of bills disappeared. Although Roberts didn't steal or cheat, he ensured that a logger's money was all spent in his establishment. An excerpt from a folk song titled The Grand Hotel reveals Robert's role in the logger's experiences. There's a place in Vancouver you all know well, so well, it's a place where they keep rotgut whiskey to sell They also keep borders. They keep them like hell. And the name of that place is the Grand Hotel. In the Grand Hotel, when the loggers come in, it's amusing to see the proprietor grin. He knows they've got money. He'll soon have it all. Come on, boys, have a drink. You will hear Tommy call. That's a fun song. All right, then. So next, you're heading to the Army and Navy. Oh, Gender Equity at Work, 27 West Hastings Street. So from here, you're heading back up to Hastings between Carroll and Abbott. See you there. All right, we're at the Army-Navy. Glad you made it. This is when women employees launched an equal pay fight at this department store in 1980. Despite the fact that equal pay for equal work laws that had been passed decades before, men working here received higher wages for doing the same jobs that women did. Although not unionized, they won their campaign with the help of the labor movement and women's groups who took up the public demonstrations in front of the store while these vulnerable workers completed their shifts. Across Canada, activist women's groups eventually pressured most provinces and the federal government to pass legislation for the broader concept of equal work for work of equal value. BC's pay equity, part of the Human Rights Code, adopted by the NDP in the 1970s, is relatively weak. It dictates that pay must be equal for similar or substantially similar work, without any requirements for cross-employer comparison, leaving female-dominated workplaces only able to compare internally to other female-dominated jobs. The problem is rooted in sexist assumption that women's wages are supplemental, while men's are essential and family-supporting. The first big test was the end of World War II, when 80,000 women were laid off from well-paying, full-time work to make way for returning war veterans. You're headed east on Hastings, one block to 65 East Hastings, where the White Lunch Cafeteria Station number nine, the White Lunch Cafeteria, Segregated Restaurants, 65 East Hastings. White Lunch opened its first of four locations on Hastings across from Woodward's in 1913. Over 70 years, it was famous for its neon signs and affordable food with the 15-cent bacon and egg sandwich in 1918. But White Lunch was also an example of a city divided by racism as it only hired and served white people. Let's just have a quick little talk about that. So there were anti, what they called in 1907, anti-Oriental riots. Um, We know that there's a a lot of racism and anti-Asian racism currently still, unfortunately. Um, And it started way before this restaurant opened. But to think that this restaurant opened on that premise and then was so famous, or so uh, well off, that they opened four locations. Not surprising, but very disappointing, I guess is what I want to say on this uh, sidewalk. So it, it's racist stigma it remained associated with this place until it closed in 1980s. And that's all I guess I can say about that. So the, back to the story, the exclusion did not mean white workers were treated well, though, and they struck on all four white lunch locations in April 1937 to demand better wages and working conditions. Many customers refused to cross the line, but the strike lasted six months before improvements were won. In September of the same year, five months into the white lunch strike, Vancouver City Council prohibited white women from working in Chinatown, claiming the the law was made to protect white women. A delegation of 16 waitresses who marched on City Hall to protest this ban was ignored. The ordinance was amended in 1939 to allow white women to work in Chinese owned restaurants that served only English meals to English people. Yeah. All right. So your next stop is going to be Carnegie Community Center, the heart of the city, at 401 Main Street. So you're heading to the corner of Main and Hastings. See you there. All right. We're at the Carnegie Community Center, the heart of the city, and some people say it's the the living room of the downtown east side. Uh, uh, yes. And Boo Boo's joining in. He really wanted to add to this. Built in 1902. With money from American robber, Brown, Andrew Carnegie, the Carnegie Center has spent more than a century as the center of one of Vancouver's working class neighborhoods. In 1935, striking relief camp workers occupied the top floor, which was then the Vancouver Museum, to demand relief funds. One reason they chose the museum was because they knew the police would be reluctant to storm the occupiers and risk destroying priceless artifacts. A massive crowd gathered in the street outside and lifted buckets of food up to the occupiers using ropes and pulleys. Within eight hours, the city caved and gave the protesters six days worth of relief vouchers, enough to convince them to use the tactic across the country during the On to Ottawa track. In the 1970s, the building sat empty. Until the Downtown Eastside Residents Association successfully lobbied to have it converted into a community center. The Carnegie Center has offered library services, education, upgrading, and nutritious meals to community residents every day, including holidays since the 1980s. Ah oh, yes, head east one block to Gore and then just south of Hastings. See you there. First United Church. God in the Jungles, 424 Gore Street. During the Great Depression, First United Church offered rare help to the unemployed and destitute. Guided by its outspoken minister, Reverend Andrew Rodan, the church fed 800 to 1200 unemployed men a day in the early 1930s. In 1935, it offered food to longshoremen on a protracted strike. And in 1938, it fed the occupiers of the post office, but its most famous work was among the unemployed of the jungles or makeshift camps located in empty parts of the city, including the dump where Rodham visited to preach and hand out food. He then wrote a book about his experiences that helped raise charitable donations. Although the church closed its soup kitchen after the Depression was over, it restarted it in the 1980s to help those suffering from the recession of that decade. It joined Vancouver's first food bank and the Grace United Church at 803 East 16th Avenue in supporting Vancouverites who had once again been made redundant by the economy and abandoned by their government. Next, off to Powell Street Grounds, Oppenheimer Park. Powell between Dunleavy and Jackson, head north towards Cordova, and then east towards Dunleavy, and you will find the park there. So Oppenheimer Park is still fenced in, is it? So Oppenheimer Park, historically the Powell Street grounds, was an important gathering place for workers of all backgrounds. It was also the site of 1909 and 1912 free speech fights when radicals, including the industrial workers of the world and the Socialist Party of Canada, rallied to protest a city ordinance stopping them from speaking publicly. So let's have a quick little um, sidewalk to talk about Oppenheimer and where the name comes from. Back in the 1880s, uh, the second largest landowner in Vancouver was the Vancouver Improvement Company. This company was headed by David Oppenheimer, which owned most of the land east of Carroll Street and around the end of False Creek. Many of the early streets here were named after uh, the company's shareholders. So Oppenheimer, Powell, DuPont, Kiefer, Harris, Barnard, and Pryor Pryor and Jackson. So as you can see, we are naming this after the wealthy. We own the land, it's ours and our names are on, on it figures. right. right, back to our story. Moreover, from the park, one can see some of the most important locations in local labor history. On Powell, across from the park was the headquarters of the Japanese camp and mill workers union, the first Japanese Canadian union to be included in the BC Federation of labor. East on Powell is the former headquarters of the IWW local 526 more famously known as the Bows and Arrows Local, where Aboriginal longshoremen organized to fight for better conditions. Looking south, down Dunleavy, you can see where the protesters climbed onto the freight trains on the On to Ottawa trek in 1935. From 1932 to 35, single unemployed men could only get government assistance if they worked in a, in a relief camp. The camps were isolated and the men worked 10 hour days six, days, six days per week for 20 cents a day. The men struck in 1935 to demand better conditions and decided to take their protest directly to the federal government in Ottawa. Prime Minister Bennett, fearing the power of the massive pop popular march, stopped the protesters by force in Regina using RCMP officers Bennett lost the next election decisively, and future development of programs like unemployment insurance owe much to the on-to-Ottawa trek. Even further east is Heatley Street, where the Battle of Ballantyne Pier began. Longshore workers in Vancouver were battling with employers over control of the union and against the use of scab labour. The end result was a strike in June 1935 that turned violent. The mayor of Vancouver, Jerry McGeer, was convinced that the longshore workers and trekkers were part of a communist revolution and sent police to prevent strikers from closing the docks. When the strikers tried to put up pickets on June 18th, the police attacked. Tear gas wafted across the downtown east side and the police chased strikers onto lawns, beating them with truncheons from horseback. The injured went to the Ukrainian labor temple for first aid, as they could not afford hospital care. Labour lawyer John Stanton was present that day and saw dozens of men bleeding, retching and vomiting in a small garden beside the Ukrainian labour temple on East Pender, which had been pressed into service as a first aid station. Nurses were in attendance, but no doctors. Being treated by a doctor and going to a hospital were luxuries few working people could afford. The scene engendered in me a combination of anger and disgust and a resolve to do what I could once I became a lawyer, to assist workers, to form unions. It was a turning point for me." So that was a quote from the lawyer John Stanton. So all of these events are described on lamppost plaques around the outside of Oppenheimer Park. They include Sinclair Centre Occupation, and that's about the Depression-era sit-in, Battle for Ballantyne Pier, about longshore workers' struggles in the 1930s. The Killing of Frank Rogers, about the Fisher's Union organizer. Soapbox Victory for Free Speech, about the free speech fight in 1912. Japanese Camp and Mill Union, about the pioneering union. Aboriginal Workers, about the key role of Aboriginal workers in BC. There is an Ontuata trek site at the southeast corner of the park. So that's a lot of signs that you can check out around that park. Seven of them. Have a look. I'm really glad if anybody did this and made it all the way to the end. It was kind of fun to make it. I hope you enjoyed it. Have a super day and let's do some labor activism.